you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Ephesians. We continue to walk through Ephesians. We have just a few weeks left here, and then we will uh, spend the summer walking through the Psalms, and we're excited about, uh, excited about doing that. But this morning, we continue looking uh, in a text that's teaching on the household codes, that is, uh, how houses are to be how houses are operating within a Christian worldview and how the gospel is transforming lives and transforming relationships and homes. But before, uh, before we read the text, would you pray with me as we prepare to look at the Word? Father, we ask that as we read your Word this morning, you would be exalted in our midst. We beg of you, Father, by your Holy Spirit to teach us, illuminate our minds to understand and comprehend And Father, we ask that you would show us how we are to apply the truth of your word into our lives. Now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Living God's Mission Through Our Vocation. And really the hope and the desire that I have is that if we don't have this view yet, we will by the end of the the message or the end of our time together this morning, that we should see our vocations in life as God's call in our lives. Uh, God has called us to this vocation and he wants to use us and he wants to see us engage in mission with him in the very vocation that he's called us to. And so this morning, living God's mission through our vocation is the hope that I, uh, the hope that I have for us as we, uh, even as we prepare to leave this place this morning, that we're going into the mission that God has called us to even throughout the week. So let us begin in verse 5 of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Follow along as I read. Slaves, obey your earthly masters, or we should say bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back From the Lord, whether he is slave or free, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This text has been the source of some controversy in the past because of Paul's way that he's addressing this household code that is prominent in their culture of the day. But we need to begin by noting that slavery in the Roman world of Paul's day was oftentimes viewed as a vocation. And it didn't carry the baggage with it that we, in our culture, uh, ascribe to slavery today. Under Roman law, slaves could eventually be set free, and they counted on being set free. It was a much different understanding People would sell themselves actually into slavery in order to gain Roman citizenship and eventually uh, buy their way out of slavery. They would be landowners. Slaves could be landowners in Paul's day. They, they, they could even have 
slaves or servants under their charge, and they could actually earn money in order to purchase their freedom uh, and be freed men. And so in Paul's day, bond servants are slaves who are part of the household units. So Paul's words here are not in favor of slavery, as some might surmise and have surmised in the past. Instead, Paul Paul is actually showing how the gospel reforms and transforms society from the inside out. He's not advocating for a Christian revolt against society. He's advocating here, he's advocating for a transformational way of living because the hope of the Christian gospel changes everything in our lives. That's what Paul is advocating for. He's addressing the societal norms of the day from really from a gospel-centered point of view, from a biblical worldview. And so as we begin to look at this passage this morning, uh, let us just kind of lay aside these, uh, these, these questions that might come into our minds, such as why isn't Paul advancing an abolitionist position or, or other questions that why is Paul standing up for slavery? That's not the issue that's happening in this passage. So let's not get sidetracked by that. And let us make it our point to see what the text is saying, to hear and to realize the exhortation of Scripture this morning and then apply that exhortation to our lives in the Western context of 21st century America in which we live. So our proposition or the proposition that I want us to see this morning is simply this. I want us to see this morning that the gospel of Jesus Christ reforms and transforms our lives so that we live out God's mission in the world through our vocations. Before we look at verse 5, I want to remind you of chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul says that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This exhortation in chapter 5, verse 21, it shines the light, really, of the gospel on Christian disposition regarding our relationships with others. In fact, over the last two weeks, we've seen how this command of mutual submission is, is to be lived out in our lives. Paul applies it to the household relationships of marriage and then of parenting, the parent-child relationship. But then he says just before that, the only way really to truly live out this life of mutual submission, it really is by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, right? Chapter 5, verse 18, he says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with with the spirit and so the reality is for every believer in other words we are we are in desperate need of God's spirit to fill us to guide us even to guard us so we must remember that as we approach this text this morning and even consider the relationships that God has given to us in our lives he has a design, a specific design. And so, so we, would, we would note that this master-slave, this bond-servant and master relationship that we're looking at in verses 5 through 9 closely parallels the employee and employer relationship that we would be aware of and used to uh, in the context of, of our country, in the context of, uh, of, of our lives. And so the first thing I think we need to see this morning is simply this. Bond-servants of Christ are servants of all. This is really the heartbeat of what Paul is saying in verses 5 through 8. Bond servants of Christ are servants of all. It's difficult to know with any precise um, understanding the percentage of, of, of slaves that were in the early church or of bond servants that were in the early church. 
And it's really difficult to know what the makeup or composition of the early church was, especially the church in Ephesus. It was most likely that one third of the population in Ephesus uh, were uh, were bond servants uh, serving masters. And most likely the majority of the congregation that Paul's writing to here, most likely they were freedmen. They were a makeup of freedmen, those who had been slaves but had gotten free, so they were ex-slaves, those who were bondservants still, some who didn't own any, uh, any servants, and then others who were masters and had this, uh, this responsibility that he addresses in verse 9. The point of all this is what we see Paul doing is addressing this relationship within the culture. And so you've got people in the church who are living under this relational component, have this relational component in their lives, and they need to know how does God's Word address this situation in my life. And so that's why Paul is writing to the church. And so Paul turns his attentions here to the bondservant-master relationship. And because many members of the church found themselves in this relationship, they needed instruction from God's Word how they could faithfully live under the authority of earthly masters. And so there was also a time in verse 9 where he turns to the earthly masters. And those masters who had been converted to Christ, they needed to be reminded of their responsibility to treat their bondservants as brothers and sisters in the faith. And so Paul encourages them, number one, to serve with integrity. We see this in verse 5. First, we note the command here in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. It's similar to the exhortation given to wives, but it's identical to the command that's given to children. Right? Wives are exhorted to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. This isn't a slave and master relationship. But with the child, we see kind of this progression. And so he, he, he speaks for the children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. This is submit and surrender to their authority. And then now for the slave, he says to the bondservants here, obey, meaning hear and listen. And then he qualifies the statement, do this with fear and trembling. In other words, respect their position of authority. It should be clear that he's not expecting that a bondservant would have such fear and trembling that there would be a terror associated with their respecting or obeying authority. Instead, he's calling the bondservants to have this godly disposition toward their earthly masters so that their loyalty and work ethic would display the hope of the gospel. This is what Paul was saying in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. He said, Let all who are under the yoke of bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Here's the point Paul was making. Their obedience was a testimony to the glory of God in the midst of their vocation. Their obedience was a testimony to the change that the gospel had wrought in their lives. Why? Because they're walking as filled with the Spirit, right? They're able to do things because they're filled with the Spirit in such a way that their flesh would not gravitate to. And so he continues, and do this with a sincere heart. In other words, with a genuineness, right? Let there be this uprightness about your life. Let there be personal integrity that flows out of your life. 
You see, their relationship to their earthly masters is really a greater reflection of their relationship to their heavenly master. Because he says, do this as you would Christ. You see, the integrity of the believer's walk with Christ should spill over into the quality of service that the believer yields in his or her daily life, in his or her vocation. So we can understand then how the Christian disposition in our vocation gives testimony to the hope of Christ within us. From the stay-at-home mom homeschooling her children to the plant worker working difficult shifts, our perspective as believers in our vocation should be it is all done for the glory of God. This was a core conviction for me when I was in seminary and I was working at UPS. I began working at UPS doing really, I mean, it was hard labor, right? Uh, Unloading trucks as they'd back up to the bay. They were hot. It was nasty. Uh, It was just, it was hard work. And so when I began working there, some of the fellow employees said, hey man, you need to join the union. And so I said, why do I need to join the union? Their perspective, I found out their perspective for the reason I needed to join the union was because it protected me from having to work hard and it kept me from getting fired. And so I thought, you know, wise or not, I, I opted not to join the union because I thought, you know, I've never known a job where I don't give my all and work as hard as I can. There's no reason that I should be fired because I'm going to be working hard. I'm going to be I'm going to have a good work ethic. In fact, the reason they wanted to hire seminary students, there were several seminary students that worked at the UPS hub. The reason they wanted to hire seminary students was because of the integrity that they brought to the job. They worked hard. They did their work. And so I opted not to I opted not to join the union. I don't know whether that's wise or not, but for me it was it was fine. It was wise. And so I wanted to have integrity in the work that I was doing. And I believe this is what Paul is talking about here. The believer serves in his or her her vocation with integrity. God desires that we would have integrity in the way that we serve our vocation. In fact, God calls us to have integrity in the vocation that he's called us to. And then secondly, we see that our service is motivated by allegiance to Christ. In verse 6, when our service is motivated by allegiance to Christ, we'll see that our vocation is the platform for advancing God's kingdom and pointing people to Christ. The goal of our servants isn't to be noticed by men, right? He says, not, as, not, not for eye service or as people pleasers. We know what Paul means here. And for the student, students, for you, it, it means in your study, learning, learning, uh, learning to apply the knowledge of, of your studies and working through, uh, working through the lens of saying, how can I give Christ glory in the midst of doing the best that I can and studying the most that I can so that I can prove myself and show myself as a good steward and student of the resources that God has given me. You apply yourself to learning and you give testimony to Christ and the work of Christ in you. For employees, our work ethic and our conduct in the workplace should display the gospel to our coworkers and even to our boss. What do we do with our time when no one's looking? How do we use company resources? Does our presence as an employee contribute to the health and the growth and the prospering of the company? Are we serving our bosses for the glory of Christ? This needs to be the believer's perspective. As we consider God's word, 
and we hear what he's saying to us. Paul says the way this happens is by serving with allegiance to Christ as we do the will of God from the heart. You see, God's mission in your vocation, in my vocation, is to show his greatness in Christ through you. He speaks about accomplishing the will of the Father in Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 1 through chapter 3. We see God's divine will played out in his sovereign, gracious, saving work in our lives. But then in Ephesians 4 through 6, we see this sovereign will or this divine will of God actually being worked out and fleshed out through the lens of our responsibility, man's responsibility. We practically flesh out our salvation in the day-to-day activity of life, as Philippians 2 even says, that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Have you ever thought of being employed in the vocation that you're in, giving testimony to God, and that being part of you working out your salvation? This is the implication of what Paul is saying here. The way that we do this work that he's called us to. Listen, your missions is not just when we go to Uganda, right? It's not just when we go to Mexico. It's not just when we, when we do something in the city to reach an organization. Missions is every day of our life engaged in the vocation that God has called us to. He has placed us there for a particular reason. Keep stepping on something here. He has placed us in that role. He has given us that vocation. And so we need to flesh that out. And here's the thing. When the inner motivation of the heart is set on serving Christ, the external actions of our lives will be consistent with God's mission in the world. Because the gospel produces an internal spring of satisfaction from Christ that radiates joy in the midst of all of life's circumstances. So the gospel transforms us. The hope of Christ changes us. Believer, this means God's mission will call in your your life is synonymous with your vocation in life. This distinction of the sacred and the secular, it's a Western distinction that we need to lose. Your vocation is a sacred vocation. Why? Because you're a sanctified child of God and he has called you into that role. And wherever you go, the Holy Spirit of God is with you. And whatever you do, the Holy Spirit of God is leading you. So God has called you to this vocation. Church, this is why we began this, mo- this morning by saying the gospel of Jesus Christ reforms and transforms our lives so that we will live out God's mission in the world through our vocations. He also says that we're to serve with eagerness in verse 7. It's difficult to serve someone eagerly who doesn't have your best interest in mind, right? But Paul's point is that when we turn our focus to serving Christ, we can serve eagerly as unto the Lord. This means, this is what he means when he says in verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord. And this is done as to the Lord. It's not done to man, right? Christian, how do you render service with a good will as to the Lord in your current vocation? Don't ask me. I'm asking you. (laughs) Right. How do you do that? Well, you get together, I think, with other believers in the same vocation and talk about it. Start a dialogue. Have a dialogue maybe of how you can do this in a way that brings glory to God. 
you're the expert in your vocation. So I think it's incumbent upon every believer to diligently search out the scriptures and submit to God's wisdom through his word, by his spirit, so that your work as a teacher or your work as an architect or your work as a mechanic or your work as an attorney or your work as a construction worker, a plant worker, shift worker, as a student, so that it all may be done to the glory of God. It's time that we view our work, our vocation, as a sacred work. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said to a group of junior high students, if it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. We must view our vocation as a sacred work and pour ourselves out for God's glory in the midst of it. Finally, our service seeks a heavenly reward. We see this in verse 8. Whatever our vocation in life, Paul's saying our service is a spiritual act of worship. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. You know, this really speaks and hints at the paradox of the Christian life, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians 7.22, Paul says, For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man. Of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Our Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, 25, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, we're to count our service to earthly masters as joy for the service to the Lord. We all, we all enjoy encouragement. We all enjoy a pat on the back and being told, job well done. But if we don't receive a pat on the back, we need to realize that it's okay. We do it for the Lord, right? Verse 8, that's what he says there in verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Nothing escapes your heavenly Father's gaze. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due, what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In light of the coming judgment, earthly accolades really are of no value. But how we serve our heavenly master is of great value. And believers will be rewarded for the work we do, bringing glory to God, on this earth in service to our earthly masters, to our bosses, in our vocations, right? I don't know about you, but this is something that I have to remind myself of often. You know, it feels good when others give us praise. For preachers, it's tempting, to be honest, it's tempting to want to preach to hear the praise of men. But then on the other hand, when when I preach and don't receive any encouragement, it reminds it's tempting for me to selfishly reflect on the preaching event and wonder if people liked it. But nowhere in Scripture am I as a preacher commanded to preach for the for the for the praise of men. Right. I'm commanded to preach for the praise of God. I'm commanded to preach because of him and what he has done. But yet this is the reality of the 
any preacher you ask will tell you the same thing. It's the reality of the tension that we face. And so Paul reminds us, whatever our vocation, our service is to be done not for men, but for God. Because when God becomes the object of our affections and the direction of our service, our focus will change. And in the encouraging times as well as the discouraging times, we'll be able to say, I did it all for the glory of God. That's the goal for the believer's life. I did it all for the glory of God. The last point I want us to see this morning is a position of authority should give expression to the gospel. And we see this in verse 9. A position of authority should give expression to the gospel. In verse 9 he says, Masters, do the same thing, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. We've seen how this translates in the marital relationship. The selfless leadership of the husband is laying down his life for the good of his wife. We've seen how this translates in parenting, right? Grace-filled parenting points our children to the fatherhood of God. And now we see how this is modeled in the master-slave relationship and that masters are to view those bondservants as equal people in the eyes of God and they are to treat them in such a way that they want to be treated. So he gives us, I think, two guideposts. Two guideposts here in verse 9. The first is this Christian leadership is informed by the gospel. Christian leadership is informed by the gospel. Look at the first thing he says there in verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. And then after that, stop your threatening. Right? Stop your threatening. Stop being harsh. This isn't how our heavenly master expresses authority over us. Instead, what God the Father does is he entreats us as his servants with mercy and grace. Paul isn't suggesting that the master exchange role with the servant. Instead, what he's saying is that the grace of Christ transforms threats into encouragement. It changes the way we do things. A boss who leads by threats creates a toxic environment. He or she rules by fear and domination. But you see, the gospel transforms our leadership by teaching us God's ways and not man's. And consequently, the Christian leader or the boss attaches dignity and value to the individuals that are under his or her charge, realizing that both, both of them serve the same master in heaven. And secondly, I think Christian leadership displays equity. Christian leadership is informed by the gospel, and Christian leadership displays equity. Since our sovereign Lord isn't partial, but fair and equitable, He's just in all his dealings. So he's saying we are to do likewise. Like our heavenly master, we're to demonstrate grace without qualifications. This is really opposite of the world's ways, isn't it? Earthly prominence doesn't grant heavenly partiality. In fact, in Matthew 23, 11 and 12, Jesus said to his disciples, the greatest in the kingdom of God is the servant of all. And then later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus actually demonstrated what that looked like when he knelt down and he washed the disciples' feet. 
You see, our perspective as we are entrusted with authority in our earthly vocations must be to use our vocations for accomplishing God's mission in the world. We should ask questions like, why has God put this person under my charge? How do I display God's kingdom values in this situation? As a boss, are you known for fairness? Are you known for justice? Are you known for righteousness? Are you known for graciousness or humility or even approachableness? Does your exercise of authority promote hope that's consistent with the gospel? How do you strike the balance of good for the company and good for the employees? It's not always about looking out for the bottom line, the dollar. As each of us steward God's call through our vocations, we must be careful. We must be careful to discern how God wants to use us for his glory in order to accomplish his mission in the world through our vocations. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ reforms and transforms our lives so that we live out God's mission in the world through our vocations. Do you see yourself, employee, employer, do you see yourself as an ambassador for Christ in the workplace? How are you being transformed to live out God's mission in the world through your vocation? I want to invite you this morning as we close our time together to pray a prayer of commitment to, to make Christ the center of your vocation. Will you commit to the Lord, allowing him to use you however he desires in your vocation? Will you ask him to strengthen you for carrying out his mission in your vocation? Maybe for you, this needs to begin back at chapter 5, verse 18, where he says, get rid of this in your life and be filled with the spirit and allow the spirit of God to lead you and direct you and guide you. I want to encourage you this morning to respond to the Lord in the way that he's leading you. Be open. Ask the Lord to strengthen you, to equip you, to be able to take your vocation and use it for his glory and see how God's at work in you and through you in your vocation to accomplish his mission in the world. Let us pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would be magnified and exalted in our lives, in the way that we take your word and respond to it and carry it out. Give us strength, Lord. Give us endurance to see our vocations as as a primary way, as one of the main ways that you want to use us to make a difference and to share the gospel with others, to make a difference in this world. And so you want to use us in, uh, in your mission through our vocations. And so, God, give us endurance, give us wisdom and discernment to hear how you're leading us in that way. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.